Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. You are a human animal. You are a very special breed. For you are the only animal who can think, who can reason, who can read. From KCRW Santa Monica, I'm Michael Silverblatt, and this is Bookworm. Today, I'm really happy to have as my guest David Foster Wallace and his book, Consider the Lobster and Other Essays, which is published by Little Brown. We haven't seen each other face-to-face in a couple of years, and it's been a while since he's been on the show, but he's been on the show from the very beginning. I'm particularly happy because this book reprints some of the essays that had been excluded from earlier books, like an essay on Dostoevsky and a lecture on Kafka, but also has a fabulous and scabrous essay on the pornography business and one of its conventions called Big Red Sun. Um, It's got the famous review of John Updike Um, It's got a long debate, a report on the debate about American usage in uh, grammar and vocabulary authority in American usage, an essay on 9-11, The View from Mrs. Thompson's, an essay on sports biography, How Tracy Austin Broke My Heart. Um, David followed the McCain campaign But the Rolling Stone only printed a sliver of his essay, Here It Is, in full, called Up Simba, a gourmet magazine essay, Consider the Lobster, and a very, I think, brilliant and moving essay called Host on political talk radio. Now, as I was reading, it seemed to me that these essays really have a deep logic to them that I'm going to start with that essay host that they begin by correcting the premises of previous commentators that essay host on American talk political radio begins by saying that many of the liberals who've criticized these stations do so from a false perspective. They consider this as political commentary and journalism, when in fact, at the stations, these are considered entertainment. And therefore, the arguments, which are largely political in nature, are irrelevant to the concerns of these stations, which are about how to use forms of anger and stimulation as entertainment and facts and correct facts are not the bases here. That seems to be the organizing point for how to consider this phenomenon of right-wing radio. And the essay seems to be about reaching conclusions based on correct and corrected premises. Well, if there's a thing, if there's a thing that, that a lot of the long pieces in this book have in common is that to a large extent they're about ideology. And I don't know. I, I, I do know that in doing some of the reading, the research reading for the talk radio piece, there, there was a, there's a sort of paradox or trap that I'm sure that I'm sure you're aware of, which is that 
um, uh, things divide very neatly into two camps, and there are apologists and opponents. And so that most of most articles about talk radio that run in organs like you know the Nation, Dissent, Harper's are um, blistering attacks on it, focused almost entirely um, on what's pernicious and or wrong. Um, the, the rather the, the rather loose relationship with facts is made much of. Then you know if you read um, the American Standard or 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 some of the more conservative organs, they're 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 very different, and their arguments have to do more with the fact that that radio, um, including talk radio, was for many years guided by ideology without anybody ever having said so, and that now suddenly that. Um, there are voices on the right that are in some ways correcting or balancing um, the liberal media bias. Now, all of a sudden, people on the left are all wor- – right? And so it's almost like listening to a to an old married couple argue with each other <laughs> um, where pretty much everybody has a point, but it's clear that there's a larger problem, which is that th- these are two sides that are not having any kind of meaningful conversation with each other. To the extent that there was a project in the talk radio piece, it was really – it was to try to do just about the only different thing I could think of to do, which was to do a piece where – to do – rhetorically, to do a piece where there was there was certainly the appearance of trying to be a great deal more fair and broad-minded to right-wing talk radio than right-wing talk radio itself was t- to its opponents and to try to an extent to look at or balance both sides. Now, in the essay about Tracy Austin, you come to an interesting conclusion, and I think it of it as being sort of a paradigm for the way these essays find themselves thinking. First, let me say that the essays are what I truly enjoy, thought in action, that in reading them, you're going to be following certain lines of argument, suspending them for consideration of an opposite, that there's a kind of muscular activity of mind going on here in addition to a lot of fun and a lot of moral consideration. You say about the Tracy Austin book that it breaks your heart because you've loved watching her. She's a tragic figure in the sports community. The autobiography comes out, or as told to, and it contains none of the understanding of what it might feel like to be on the playing field making any number of immediate instinctual decisions, what that feels like, what it's like to be wired in that way, what it's like to be a genius of that sort. And then the essay concludes with the idea that perhaps being a genius of that sort precludes being able to have to voice distinctions and careful choices, that the immediacy of the sport is born out of a body's response immediately without intervention of the mind. This seemed to me to be a very generous um, way 
of saying that the verbal art operates independently of the trained body and that these books are striving toward something that a sports person can't even be expected to start to do. See, you do, you do a way better job of describing these things than I would. I know what, whatever, whatever, whatever muscularity there is in a, in, a, in a piece like the Tracy Austin or, or the Lobster one had to do with the fact that some of these, some of these start out as sort of magazine assignments, um, and th- they end up – oh, I don't know how to explain this um, – I don't know a whole lot about nonfiction, journalism, all this sort of stuff. The, the way that I think about these things and in terms of what I can do is I, I almost think that this is kind of a little bit of a service industry and that these essays like this are, are occasions to watch somebody reasonably bright but also reasonably average um, pay far closer attention and think at far more length about all sorts of different stuff than, than most of us have a chance to in our daily lives. I mean, to the extent to which I understand what I'm trying to do in these pieces, it's that. The, the, so, so what I'm, I'm remembering the word because it's compliment. What you're referring to is this muscularity. The, the, the few, some pieces that, um, that have a certain problem end up being good enough that like I'll put him in a book. The problem will be um, I did a review of the Tracy Austin autobiography, which maybe now is somewhat dated. I have I know people under thirty who don't even know who Tracy Austin was, but um, the kind of the first great nymphit prodigy of the female tennis world in the seventies and eighties, and some someone whom I grew up watching. Well, the problem is that the and I mean this with no offense from any kind of literary uh, point of view, the the book's a train wreck. It's um, it's banal. It's insipid. In in places, it's incoherent. Um, and the the problem with you know, I'm sure you've written book reviews too. One 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 can really make the point and back it up with examples in like two paragraphs. And then what what is there to say that makes this an interesting piece of writing? In the Tracy Austin thing, the thing that ended up. And that the piece ended up being about was I decided to pay attention to something rather different, which is why why did I expect this to be better? And why this the genre of sports autobiographies happens to be one of the subgenres that I have this kind of guilty addiction to. I read at least did read huge numbers of them, and almost every one involved this sort of this sense of kind of angry betrayal or disappointment because they were never as interesting as I was sure they were going to be. And so really, to the extent that it's an essay, it ends up being about a why would a more or less averagely intelligent person like these things when they're so dreadful? And, and, um, and B, what is it about them? I guess you don't say one and B. One, why I like them. <laughs> Two, um, why, what exactly is it that makes them so so bitterly disappointing for somebody who, say, played sports as a kid? And so that that ends up being what it's about. Um, the same way that the lobster essay, I mean, nothing personal, but the main lobster festival was really kind of boring, and there wasn't very much to write about. The only thing that was interesting was that it was this entire thing devoted to um, the pleasures of boiling alive and eating lobster. And on the fringes, you had people from PETA who were offering a very different 
template through which to look at the experience of being lobster, and so that's what the piece ended up being about. PETA stands for? I believe it's People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. I'm speaking with David Foster Wallace. I'm Michael Silverblatt, and you're listening to Bookworm from the studios of KCRW. David's new book is Consider the Lobster and Other Essays, published by Little Brown. We'll continue after this short break. I'm Michael Silverblatt, this is Bookworm, and I'm talking with David Foster Wallace about his book of essays, Consider the Lobster. The lobster essay comes to a kind of breaking point at which it addresses its reader and says, you, reader of Gourmet Magazine, don't want to be told about the potential pain of the lobster But on the other hand, who would be more appropriate to tell? Um, And so the essay takes on a kind of sense of its place and form, sense of direct logical address to its audience, telling its audience why they need to be addressed this way, because in fact, who would care more or could be expected to care more than the readers of Gourmet Magazine if these readers, in fact, want to be informed and are thinking deeply about lobster. Well, but it depends. I mean, it's predicated on on my admitting that there are certain things, certain gustatory things I don't know. One of the things that was interesting about that piece is the subtitle of Gourmet Magazine is the magazine of good living, right? Um, When you start looking at a phrase like good living, obviously, (laughs) there are all kinds of different ways that you can interpret (laughs) it. This was this. Here's another weird thing about this book. There are three or four. There are three or four of the pieces in here that are nearly to me inexplicable unless frequent acknowledgement is made in the piece that they are appearing in a certain organ. Rolling Stone in the McCain piece is another example I can think of. What was interesting to me is that. At the time that the magazines were chopping them up and deciding to run them, they, were, they seemed somehow allergic to the idea of the article talking about the organ in which it was appearing and what certain demographic or rhetorical considerations followed from that. So the only place that I have – that I really have space and permission to talk in detail about that is in the book. But, of course, well, now that it's in the book, it's in fact not – in that organ, and so it all ends up being extremely strange. <laughs> but, but in relation, for instance, to the lobster essay, that idea about good living being a widely definable concept, which would include living in conscious awareness of one's environment and what one does to it, these essays often unfold gradually into subjects, I would say, larger than their occasions. Often the subject of morality 
in what might be considered a largely post-moral age. And what becomes very interesting to me is that as a young writer, you might be considered an avatar or spokesperson for the post-moral age. So watching David Wallace in these essays, parsing moral distinctions and insisting, no, I, I don't feel comfortable doing the humor piece on the Maine Lobster Festival. What's more, occasioned by the festival, I've been approached by people with pamphlets who've told me about what animals suffer. But I still want to continue eating certain things. So the essay becomes an attempt for the author to demonstrate a kind of moral relativism for his reader. That's what thrilled me about it. But, uh, other than other than arguing with you about whether I'm in any way a young writer anymore, I'd mostly, <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious. Um, avatar of the post-moral age, how? Like, what do you mean by moral and post-moral? Um, I think that until I read this book of essays, for many reasons, I didn't know where you stood politically, I had certain assumptions. When, in the course of the 9-11 essay, you visit the neighbor, a neighbor of yours who attends the same church you go to, I say to myself, gee, I didn't know David Foster Wallace goes to church. That's interesting. Um, think of the apocalyptic complexity of the fiction as being not necessarily the work of someone I expect going to church and visiting neighbors to watch their TV, that kind of thing. You know more about this than I. My my sense is that somehow around around the time of modernism, literary stuff, me, meaning not mass market, I mean the kind of stuff you talk about on your show, has has become almost exclusively an aesthetic enterprise. Um, I don't, moral? I guess I, I guess I associate moral with, the word moral with self-righteousness and judgment, and so it makes me... Oh, not at but all. But then I don't like post-moral either because it sounds amoral. Um, all, I can, all I can tell you is that, is that, that, is that, because as I'm driving on the terrifying freeways down here, I'm thinking about, I'm th okay, so, so what general, what general thing to say about these kind of nonfiction pieces is a lot of it involves, as far as I can see, just just a service. Uh, the ordinary person is going to the Maine Lobster Festival um, in, in order to rest and escape from complicated, stressful, unpleasant parts of their life. Between that and little kids tugging at your pant cuff, you don't have time really to sit and noodle the average person for long periods of time about what this experience is like, what, what assumptions you bring to bear to it, um, what conclusions are to be reached. And for the very few Americans who have a taste for that sort of thing, um, I think these essays simply provide, here's somebody, here, here's somebody who really <laughs> went absolutely to the wall. 
dropping all the attention filters, trying to pay attention to absolutely everything um, and figure out, um, including his own responses and his own ideological templates and trying his very best to figure out what the truth is. One of the reasons I liked seeing the Dostoevsky essay reprinted, although my sense is that it's slightly older than some of the other pieces, um, was that it ends on a question of how a novelist today might aspire toward the ethical, moral, spiritual authority that Dostoevsky attained and wonders whether that's even possible. But in the course of wondering, the essay identifies you, David Wallace, as someone who likes to write fiction, who regards fiction considered from a solely aesthetic standpoint as being insufficient, but who finds the big questions hard to address and sometimes ridiculous to consider addressing in the direct and extreme ways that Dostoevsky found. Um, So, you know, it is, maybe the word moral should be ethical, but at any rate, putting this rather than solely aesthetic dimensions at the center of the piece or amusement, this had better be funny or I'm out of here, um, but, but to find a way to bring these pieces to a concern with the ethics of the community seemed to me to be heroic and beautiful. Do I possibly want to argue with that? <laughs> I mean, the the Dostoevsky thing, which is older, is in there partly because um, so so. As with the last four or five books, I mean, I have a really good editor, and so the things that are the things that are in here are in here and in here in an order that's that that's meant to establish connections that may not be, you know, what they may not be obvious to anybody but me and him. But but one of them has to do with. See, the, some of this stuff's so complicated it's hard even to talk about. Ideology or what you might call – Stanley Cavell ca- would call it conditions that have to do with an audience's willingness to be pleased. So that when you, when you use words like moral or ethical, those to me, those to me connote um, a situation that's really good for the kind of era in which – Dostoevsky or, you know, in Europe, maybe the Romantics were writing. And this involves the, quote, artist as this kind of solitary, heroic figure wrestling with his own soul and um, finding finding a way to to, to turn that struggle into art for the reader. You know, maybe maybe what I would say about that just makes me sound like an avatar of some kind of post-moral thing. But it seems to me having been born in 1962 and have and having grown up without any memory of a of of a life without television for example is that in in fact what we have when you talk about stuff like the dostoevsky or ethical or moral dimensions to art is we really 
we really have what appear to me to be two, two different problems who are related in complicated ways. One is the classic one of, um, of just of dis- deciding the writer decides the way all of us have to decide what is it to be a human being? What is it to find some way to make an accommodation with um, being an individual and being s- self-centered but also being part of a larger group and loving some people and not, you know, all, the, all that stuff, all the old romantic stuff. But then with the, the, the other concerns appear to me to be, to, to be more rhetorical or technical. Um, that something that that doesn't get talked about very much in any era I know of up till you know maybe the postmodern era is that these are also these are public documents and works of art that are not meant simply to be expressive they're not meant simply to be spontaneous um, spontaneous effusions from an individual soul they are also they're, they're also communications and pieces of art that are designed to please, gratify, edify, whatever, other human beings. So that, so that, you've, got, so that you've got not just, not just what's true for me as a person, but what's going what's gonna to sound true, what's going to hit readers or, or, or music listeners or whatever, what's going to hit their nerve endings as true in 2006 or 2000 or 1995, and it, it seems to me, I, I mean, um, I may have kind of a, a pessimistic view of it, but it seems to me that the, the, that the, the situation, the environment in which nervous systems receive these communications is vastly more um, complicated, difficult, um, cynical, and overhyped than it used to be. The, the easy example is that um, um, and, and one that I go that, that I go through over and over with you know students in writing classes is that these students are far more afraid of coming off as sentimental than they are of coming off twisted, obscene, <laughs> gross, any of the things that used to be that, that that used to be the really horrible things that you didn't want to betray about yourself. And it would appear that the great danger of appearing sentimental is that sentimentality is mainly now used in what appear to be very cynical um, marketing or mass mass entertainment devices that are meant to sort of manhandle the emotions of large numbers of people who aren't paying very close attention. So that some of the most urgent themes or issues, um, how to deal with with mourning the loss of somebody you love very much, has been so adulterated by um, sort of treacly... Um, cynical um, commercial art that it becomes very, very, very difficult to think about how to how to talk about it in a way that's not just more of that crap. I've been speaking with David Foster Wallace, author most recently of Consider the Lobster and Other Essays, published by Little Brown. Thank you, David, oh, for joining thank me. Thank you. You can read an excerpt from Consider the Lobster on the Bookworm page at kcrw.com. My associate producer is Melinda Siegel. The technical director is Mario Diaz, with production assistance from Alan Howard. I'm Michael Silverblatt. Join me again next time on Bookworm. Bookworm.